On the screen to start off with, um, as we um, move from Lent, you probably are familiar with this. Um, you, we could have a debate about what that is, uh, whether it's the silhouette of two people or a vase. Um, and another one that you might be uh, familiar with or maybe not, um, you have to look at that one a little more carefully, depending on which way that woman is looking. If she's looking to the right, it's a young woman. If she's looking to the left, it's um, an old woman that we might see on the street. And then there's another image um, that you might be wondering about, and you, you might debate what that is, at least if we were in a mixed company. It, it could be um, something that's at the end of a necklace that a celebrity is wearing, or, it, or it, it could be an instrument of execution by Roman soldiers, or uh, it, it actually could be a sign of God's irrational love. We could debate that, and Paul says we could as well. Well, what these passages have in common this morning that we listened to, that we read, is vision. In other words, what do you see when you look at the Ten Commandments? What do you see when you see the cross? What would you have seen when you looked at the temple? And what you see determines how you live, how you act in the world. For instance, um, and we can lift that up, but for instance, let's take the Ten Commandments in our Old Testament passage. Some might see a, a list of rules that, uh, you know, we, we'd like that list of rules posted in every school in America. Uh, we'd like it in every courtroom building. Um, but, but look again. I mean, look again at the, at, the, at the passage because what those rules are lacking in the public places in which they're located is the covenant context that changes the way you see these commandments. If you look at the prologue in the Exodus passage of the Ten Commandments, what you see is that before any commandment is uttered, the God who gives the law identifies himself first. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, the lawgiver is the redeemer. That is why God tells his people to have no other gods. To go with another god is to go back into slavery. The God who gives the first commandment is the same God who brought us out of slavery. And he wants to keep us out of slavery. And the only way to do that is to command us not to serve other gods like money and careers and the nation or self. And you can see the same thing happening in Psalm 19. Take a look at Psalm 19. It begins, the heavens declare the glory of God. In fact, in the first six verses of this psalm, the psalmist speaks of creation and how the creation lets us know about God. And then if we had verse numbers there, you would see that in verse 7, it speaks about the law that the Lord has given. The interesting thing is this, that in the first half of the psalm about creation, uh, the psalmist uses the everyday Hebrew word for God, El. But when he starts talking about the law, he switches to the name 
from, from El to the name that God gave Moses and Abraham when he made a promise to them, Yahweh, that we translate Lord. It's the difference between uh, my generic name, Dennis, and uh, the name that my, um, well, at least that's what perhaps you call me when you're facing me. Um, I don't know what other people call me behind my back, but uh, that's my generic name. And then when my kids speak to me, they call me Dad. That's the difference. The generic name God. And that, that, that name that a parent gives to a child, in this case, Yahweh, Lord. The point is this. The law is something given to us by the God who loves his people in a way that a parent loves his kids This God, known by the name Yahweh, gave these commandments as part of his gracious covenant with his people, as part of his plan to redeem them from slavery to sin. The creation was made by the God whom we address as El, but the law was given by the same God whom we know as the covenant-keeping, promise-making, gracious Father that we know as Lord. For the Christian, the one who has already entered into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, this law is no longer simply a device that that condemns us by showing us how sinful we are. It's no longer just simply that list of rules that we can't keep that drives us to the grace of God. For the Christian, the, the one who already rests in the embrace of Christ, the law now takes on a new significance. Since we know that we can't live up to the law's demands, we don't try any longer to try, you know, to show God just how great we are and and how holy we are so that God will accept us. No. Instead, we are already in a love relationship with this God. We are already in a love relationship with the Father and through Jesus Christ, and we see the law as a good thing. It's as something that a loving parent shows his kids what a fulfilling and, and, and freed life looks like. So then we can say with the psalmist, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making the wise the, uh, making, uh, the uh, wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. For the Christian who sees the law in a different way, these commands are not just some external code. They're not just some list of ten rules meant to be taken out of context of the covenant and and hung on courtroom walls or in public school hallways. For the Christian, the law is now written on our hearts by the lawgiver because we have this same lawgiver residing in our lives as the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now God himself is the teacher as as he lives within us. And to obey the law, such as the Ten Commandments, then is to be guided by the Holy Spirit. The very same God whom Jeremiah prophesied that uh, he would not just write laws on stone, but he would write them in our hearts. And so this law instructs us in the way we are to love. 
You see, love is a word that doesn't come with a definition. It has to be defined. And so the law gives us the details of what a life looks like that has received grace and seeks to extend that same grace to others. In other words, people who obey the law of love are people who do not steal. Because if you have received free grace, then you want to share it with others just as you have received and not keep it to yourself. People who obey the law are people who do not kill. Because if while you were enemies with God, God made you his friends by laying down his life for you, his enemy, then you do not want to terminate life. You want to protect it. People who obey the law are people who do not commit adultery because if God has made an eternal promise to be our God and to, to have us to be his people, then you want to keep your promises and live as faithfully as God treats us. And people who obey the law are people who keep the Sabbath because God, if God created us and programmed us to be six-day-on, one-day-off kinds of people, then to live healthy, God-honoring lives, we will want to reserve one day a week for rest and worship and feasting and celebration. It all makes sense when you remember that the lawgiver is the same God as the Redeemer, who is also the same God as the one who created us. The Creator's laws are like instruction booklet that comes with the product. You know, we, we humans, I'm so glad that we get instruction booklets with the phones that we get, right? Because I can't figure out all the different options that that phone gives me unless I have an instruction booklet. But in the same way, in the same way, if it were not for God's instruction booklet, the law, the Torah, my life would not function well. The law is holy and good because it reflects the character of the one who gives it and, and because it should be reflected in the lives of the creatures who are made in his image, in the image of a creator, lawgiver, redeemer. If you drive a Honda, and you should, it's a good car, Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> but if you drive a Honda, you don't take your car to the Toyota dealer if, if something is going wrong with it, if it's not running right. You take it back to the folks who made it. If you have an HP computer, you don't send it to Apple to get it fixed when it breaks down. You send it back to the folks who made it. And if you have a bunch of humans who are ruining their lives through sexual impurity or anger or envy or greed or whatever else is on that list, then you consult the manufacturer and his instructions. And then by virtue of the fact that the manufacturer lives within you, you will find that your life begins to run a little more smoothly, a little more deeply, a little more freely. Jesus said it succinctly. He said, live in my words. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Precisely the kind of vision that we ask for each week in our prayer of confession, and listen to it carefully when we pray that prayer of confession later. We will kneel 
and we will admit to God our sins, and we will ask that God forgive us so that we might delight in his will, his commands, and walk in his ways. In other words, even in our liturgy, we begin to see that the commands of God are actually permissions. They're permissions to live a life of covenantal love. We have permission to share our stuff. We have permission to protect life. We have permission to keep our vows. We have permission to rest on the Sabbath because the lawgiver is the Redeemer. And that brings us to this text in 1 Corinthians because it's there that we see how the lawbreakers even get into this covenant relationship that turns these commandments into ways of living a freed life. But again, just as some people see the Ten Commandments as, a, as an onerous list of rules, while the Christian vision sees them as life-giving permissions, we'll have to see the cross that redeems us and our world from a radically unworldly perspective. What I mean is this. In our text, there's a verse at the beginning, verse 18, that is shocking. Maybe it doesn't shock you, but just listen to it. That the cross is the power of God. The Greek word is dunamis, dynamite. The cross is the power of God. The cross is the power of God to those who see it with the eyes of faith. How often we see the cross as the low point in Christ's life. How quickly we want to pass over Good Friday, get on to Easter. <laughs> and it's true, the cross only has power because it is the cross of the one who was resurrected. But the resurrection doesn't cancel out the cross. In fact, the cross is the foundation of our faith and of our community. It's the focus of our attention, both visually and liturgically. Once again, the point of the liturgy is to get us to see rightly. That's why you're here this morning. It's to get our vision right. It's to see the world and our lives correctly. It's to change our vision. And so we, we proclaim with Paul, Christ in him crucified. But, but you've got to ask the question, what is this power of the cross which, of which Paul speaks? And it's the power. It's the power of a love that transforms hate into compassion, that transforms the desire for revenge into the eagerness to forgive, that transforms what seems to be weakness into the most powerful force on the earth. And here's how it all came about. Christ showed by his incarnation what it means to be a perfect human being. We're being made into the image of Christ because we want to reclaim our humanity once again. He wanted to show us what God intended for us to be in the first place, the same kind of existence, human existence, that the Ten Commandments are portraying. But we didn't like what we saw because his light exposed the dark corners of our lives, the distortions of human existence, 
the hoarding and the deceit and the cheating and the Sabbath breaking that we would prefer to keep hidden from sight. And so in our last act of hatred, we got rid of his presence. And he let us. He let us. And there's the foolishness that Paul is speaking about. There's the weakness. God let us kill him. But like the commercial says, but wait, there's more. God took our final act of human hatred, our act of human hatred, and he transformed it into his way of offering forgiveness to us. That is power. The very same cross by which we exercised our vengeful hatred, our vengeful power to execute an innocent man became the symbol that adorns every Christian church and which symbolizes to us no longer the power of Caesar to exact vengeful and hateful retaliation, but the power of forgiving love. Imagine if you had come into this chapel this morning and Beth had put up a noose or some rifles in a blindfold instead of the cross that's there. Um, first of all, Vanguard would probably kick us out after this week, all right? They wouldn't like that. But you might have thought, what is that? You know, where's the cross? You, you've desecrated the place, Beth. What's going on? But put yourself back 2,000 years ago. Because you never would have found a cross anywhere near a house of worship before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. To the Jew, it was a sign of God's curse. And to the Gentile, it was foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see... Only the forgiving love of Jesus Christ displayed on the cross would have the power to completely reverse the meaning of that symbol. How did Paul know that this cross had such power? Well, the proof was in changed lives. Paul is the one who persecuted and killed Christians, right? But he had come to experience the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of the cross in such a way that he could later write, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In the same way, centuries later, a man named John Hutton told a story of a drunk who became a Christian. His coworkers knew about it and they tried to shake him up. He said, yeah, a sensible man like you. Surely you don't believe that in the miracles the Bible talks about. You can't believe in the miracles that, that, like Jesus turning the water into wine. And a man could only reply, well, I don't know if he changed the water into wine, but in my house he changed beer into furniture. <laughs> Change lives. That's the power of the cross. And that's the way it is with this crucified Jesus who created the world and shows us how to live a life that's, that's free and fulfilled. 
But even the people who, with whom he worshipped, the people with whom he identified, they still couldn't see what he saw. They had made the temple, for instance, a place where people came into the presence of God, a commercial enterprise. And they, de- they did it so much so that their vision was so obscured that when Jesus tried to let them in on a secret that would change the way that they would see the temple, they couldn't get it. He tried. He alluded to the cross that we've been talking about by telling them that if you destroy the temple that's standing in front of you, I will raise it up in three days. By the way, um, those whips that are talked about, um, that wasn't a real whip. Um, If it had been, Jesus would have been arrested before he entered the temple. No weapons were allowed in the temple precinct, and a whip was considered. It's a whip of cords. Probably uh, it it could have been uh, palm fronds or or, or, um, wheat stalks. It, it, It wasn't something that he hit people with that did damage. But there he is in his temple. And, of course, Jesus' point that even the disciples didn't understand until after his resurrection was that the the place to meet God would no longer be the building that excluded women and Gentiles from the inmost courts. No, now the temple where they were going to meet God was now the one in whom there is no male or female, no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free. The one whose death on the cross would draw all people to himself The one who has the lacked act of grace would actually wash the feet of the betrayer. The one who has the last act of grace would actually share the meal with the one who would betray him as he instituted the Last Supper. The one whose crucified body we all are welcomed to partake of this morning because the cross has changed the way that we see everything and everybody. I recently came across a a book entitled, uh, ironically with the same title that we use for our Anglican Confirmation, Christianity Rediscovered. Makes you wonder if we're getting our titles from somewhere else, but it's the story of an American Roman Catholic priest by the name of Vincent Donovan, and he was sent in the late 1960s to evangelize the Maasai in Tanzania. In his book, he describes how, uh, how a series of, of communities came to grasp the significance of the Eucharist and how the regular practice of the liturgy informed and shaped their common life together, how the liturgy changed the way that they saw everything. But at first, it wasn't easy. And so here's what he wrote. I want to share this brief comment with you. He said, Maasai men had never eaten in the presence of women, Maasai women. In their minds, the status and condition of women were such that the very presence of women at the time of eating was enough to pollute any food that was present. How then was the Eucharist possible? If ever there was a need for the Eucharist as a salvific sign of unity, it was here. Here in the Eucharist, we, are, we were at the heart of the unchanging gospel that I was passing on to them. They were free to accept the gospel or reject it. But if they accepted it, they were accepting the truth that in the Eucharist, there is neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female. They came to accept it. 
It radically changed their lives. Because of the liturgy, the Eucharist, the men now saw the women in a new way. And that's what the cross of Jesus does if we see it with the eyes of those who are being saved. It changes us into people who want to live lives that reflect the gracious God. It changes into people who know where true power really lies, that it doesn't lie in avenge, with the vengeance of a world that is power-hungry. And it changes us into people who have been reconciled to one another, male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. Hopefully we can say with the Apostle Paul these words, but far be it from me to glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, that I might delight in his will, delight in his will, and walk in his ways. And this morning, that's what I would like you to think about as we continue in this liturgy that shapes us to see the world a certain way. Delight in his will and walk in his ways. That's the word of the Lord. Amen.